Wonderful to see you all. I made it easy for everyone with the Bible readings, the first and the last page of the Bible, just about. Uh, but you need to go back to the first page. That's what we're looking at today, Genesis chapter 1. So uh, turn your Bibles back there, uh, and uh, I might pray for us as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, uh, on this Father's Day, we thank you for fathers, but we especially thank you for you, uh, our Father who loved us so much that you sent your Son to pay the price for us so that we might be called your children, so that we might find your forgiveness. Uh, and Father, we thank you that you have not left us in darkness, but you have uh, revealed yourself to us and invited us to come to know you. And so we pray now as we listen to your word that you will give us humble hearts, uh, willing to listen, willing to learn, and willing to respond in faith and obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our world is incredibly beautiful, so you only have to work, walk outside today and look up at the sky and uh, you just see we have this beautiful earth we live on. Victoria and I have just been away for a week's holiday. Uh, we were up in, uh, it was our 25th wedding anniversary, there you go. We went up to, uh, to uh, yes that deserves a round of applause for Victoria, but uh, yeah. Uh, went up to North Queensland and we went in a hot air balloon, which I had absolutely no interest in doing, but the things you do for love. Uh, Victoria's always wanted to go in a hot air balloon. Uh, I was absolutely frightened out of my life. Uh, I was going to show a photo. They took a photo of us as we were going up. Uh, but the photo shows Victoria beaming and me backing away from the edge like this. So I didn't, didn't think that was helpful. But even through my fear, after about five minutes I got past that, even through my fears, you look out over the mountains and you look out over the rainforest and you, you see, you know, the lakes and you see kangaroos jumping around beneath you. Our world is amazing. Our world is beautiful. It is incredible. Uh, then, though, it's interesting, we got back to our motel uh, and just I just turned on the, the news and there was a report about the youth crime wave in Queensland and about 12-year-old boys invading homes and assaulting people and stealing from them because they had nothing better to do. So you've got this juxtaposition. You? Our world is beautiful, but at the same time our world is also messed up and broken. And I don't think anyone can argue with that fact. People are broken. You know, despite the beauty of this world, there is an epidemic of hopelessness. If you look at our society, people have never been wealthier. People have never had the opportunity to enjoy this beautiful creation as much as the generation who lives now. But when you look at our society, people struggle on the whole to find why life matters at all. People struggle to find any meaning, any joy, any purpose. And so what happens is in our world, people search for joy. They search for meaning in all sorts of places and they never find it. And so lots of people put on a happy face and live for the moment. You know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die and try and just find meaning in, in doing the next exciting thing, seeing the next movie, going on the next trip, whatever it is. Or perhaps at their best, people try to live a life that helps other people and find meaning in that way. So they want to look back at the end of their life and think that people might remember them for the good that they did. Very few people actually achieve that. Very few people are actually remembered at all. And so the reality is there is just an epidemic of hopelessness in our world. You might be thinking at this point, wow, Phil needed a longer holiday. This is a very uh, depressing start to the sermon, but no, I had a great holiday. So this is just the reality. This is the rea If you actually look at our world with your eyes open, this is the reality of our broken world. 
Now, of course, as Christians, we know our world has been broken ever since sin entered the equation. And we're going to see that in Genesis 3 in a couple of weeks' time in this series in Genesis. This is not a, it's not like this is a new problem. It's not like this is a new issue that's arisen in the, uh, the 2020s. But I think in modern Western culture, the culture we live in, the problem has gotten worse in our time and is getting worse in our time. And I think the number one reason for that, the number one reason is because our society has stopped believing Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So it's on the screen or in your Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, until a couple hundred years ago, every person, even if people weren't Christians, that was their understanding of the world. The world is created by God, and so therefore there is a meaning to our existence beyond this world, beyond the, these material things, beyond this life. But a couple of hundred years ago, the dominant view, in our culture at least, started to change to a view that specifically tried to exclude God. The theory of evolution started a movement where people started to believe this world has always just existed and our world and we ourselves, we are just the random end point of a cosmic accident. And over time, that view has then tried to exclude any place for God as part of the equation. This world is all there is. Make the most of it. And so as that view has become dominant, we call it materialism, if you want to understand our world, that is the basis of our world's thinking. That view that there is nothing beyond this physical existence, is it any wonder that people have lost hope? Because it is a fundamentally hopeless, in every sense of that word, a fundamentally hopeless way of viewing our world. I think most people in our world who are not Christians, most people survive by being inconsistent. And what they do is they say that's what they believe, but they import meaning into life from their religious roots, from their religious background. If they were consistent though, if people were consistent and truly believed in our dominant view of the world, there is no meaning in this life. You are just an accident. And other people, think about it, why do you have to treat other people well? The only reason is so that maybe they treat you well back. Or so that maybe they don't hurt you. Or so that maybe you don't get into trouble with society. See, our world does not get this. Our world has no idea. They think if we can just educate people, that's the answer. If we can just educate people and teach them science and Shakespeare and whatever else, then they will just find meaning and hope and not hurt one another. Why? Why would we do? See, if this world is all there is, and there is no beginning, and there is no end, no purpose, it does not matter how smart you are, it doesn't matter how educated you are, it is all for nothing. The problem with our world is that it has thrown out Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the truth that God created the world. Psalm 14, verse 1, written thousands of years ago, it said this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You see, our world's problem is it needs to rediscover the truth of Genesis 1. But of course, for us as Christians, we have meaning and hope. Praise God, because we have come to know Jesus. Our lives have purpose. We live for Christ. Christ gives us meaning. But this opening part of the Bible is so important 
for us to keep looking at. You see, how many times have you looked at Genesis 1? I'm not going to ask, but you know, just think, I'm sure many of you have looked at Genesis 1 a thousand times, but you need Genesis 1 to actually understand who you are and to actually understand why you exist. So over the next few weeks, we're looking at Genesis 1 to 11. Now, now I know I always talk at the beginning of every series about how important every book of the Bible is. I am not exaggerating when I say you must know Genesis 1, you must understand Genesis 1 to 11 if you are going to understand the rest of the Bible. When we do the intro to the Bible course that Troy was talking about before, which I encourage everyone, if you've never done it before, sign up to do it this year. Uh, When we do that course, we spend more time in these chapters, Genesis 1 to 11, than any other part of the Bible. They are that important. Because this is the thing, the book of Genesis, it's not just the beginning of the story. It's not just like chapter one to get you into the story so that you, you then find things later on. It's what's doing is actually laying the foundation for how we understand the three most important things every person needs to understand. It's laying the foundation, first of all, of our understanding of God. Then the foundation of our understanding of the creation of the world we live in. And then thirdly, it's the foundation of our understanding of ourselves, of who we are as humanity, what it means to be a human being. So this is pretty important stuff, what we're looking at in Genesis 1 to 11. Now we're going to deal with chapter 1 over two weeks. You would have noticed uh, we stopped reading halfway through. We're looking at chapter 1 over two weeks because this week I want to look at what it teaches us about God and the world. And then next week we're going to look at what it teaches us about humanity. So let's get into it. Come with me. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start with that vital first verse, which I think is not just the heading of the chapter, it's the heading of the whole Bible. So I've called it the big heading in the beginning. So verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is just a fundamental point. The universe has not always been there. God has always been there. God has always existed. There was a beginning to creation. It's funny, the great Christian scientist, John Lennox, a few people read things by John Lennox, a few people have. He's a, he's a great Christian professor at Oxford, great Christian scientist and apologist for the Christian faith. Uh, he talks about how science has actually come back to understanding that the universe has a starting point. It hasn't always been. It started at a point in time. But he then talks about how lots of scientists refuse to believe that despite all the evidence. And they're quite open about it. They won't accept it because it opens up the likelihood that there is a God. So much for value-free science at that point. But you see, the Bible is clear. There is a beginning Before then, only God existed. God has always been. It's only God who is eternal. But then it says, God created. That verb there is really important. The verb he used there, to create, it's only ever used of God in the Bible. It's not the word for making pottery. It's not the word you use for building a house or or, or making furniture or whatever else you might create. Because God didn't just pull together the universe and shape it. He created it out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. When it says there, keep looking, the heavens and the earth, that's the Bible's way of saying everything. Everything. From nothing, God created everything. See, when you look through one of those super telescopes and you see one of those distant galaxies out there, 
God made it. God made it. When, when you, you, know, you read those books by those super smart physicists sort of people, I don't read many of those books, but you know what I'm talking about, and they explain how there are millions of galaxies and they're constantly expanding and how the conditions in our galaxy had to be exactly right for the planets to orbit in that particular way and the earth to tilt at that particular angle and that made it possible for life to thrive on this one planet. When you read that, that isn't a, a one in 50 trillion accident. It's the handiwork of God. It's the wonder and the glory of God. When, when you look through a microscope and you see the, the tiny atoms that, 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 that make up everything, that come together to form the human body, it is not just a one in a million trillion accident. It is the glorious creation of God. I'm always struck when I'm watching those documentaries on TV and you have this supposedly smart scientist and he, and he says, you know, when you look at that organ of the human body, it's amazing. there's no reason it came to be like that. It's an absolute wonderful accident. God did it. Are you so stupid? Are you so foolish that you can't see that? You see, I often joke, it takes a lot more blind faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian, to believe that this is all an accident rather than a work of the one true God. But the point here is, God is not a part of our world. God has always existed. God stands above everything, this whole creation. And that means God gives it its meaning. See, we do not live in an accident. This creation was made by God, for God, and for his glory. And so if you want to grasp its purpose, if you want to grasp your purpose... We need to find it from the creator. To understand ourselves and understand our world, we need God to explain it to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the truth. There's the basis of everything else. It's the only thing that gives anything else meaning. You cannot understand our world. You cannot find any meaning in our world unless you first know and grasp that God created the heavens and the earth. Well, if that's the heading, now we get into the creation story itself. That was just verse 1. Now we're in verses 2 to 31. So come to verse 2, and you see how the, the camera had the wide-angle lens out over the whole of creation, the whole universe. Now it zooms in on our world, on our earth. Look there. It says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. I think the picture here is, is meant to be written in a way that has you standing there watching it. As if you were standing, this is what you would see if you were standing there. You'd struggle to stand there, but you get the point. Mo see, Moses wrote this for us under God's inspiration. Moses wasn't there. He didn't exist at that time. God explained this to him and gave it to him to write down. But if you were there, this is what you would have seen. The world was an empty canvas covered in darkness. It was formless, it was empty. And the point is, it could not sustain life. It, it was inhospitable. But God was there, it says. Above it all was the Spirit of God. Ready to speak, to turn this dark, inhospitable world he created out of nothing into the beautiful thing we now have, which is abundant with life. Now, I'm going to pause at this point. Because it's about now, as we come to the first day of Genesis 1, it's about now that people suddenly move forward on their seats and uh, get interested because the problem we have is we come to this chapter with controversies in our mind. 
which is never a good way to read the Bible. We, we come to this chapter with questions and arguments, often the wrong questions, because Genesis 1 has become a battleground, hasn't it, for people about how science and the Bible fit together. So we come asking, did God really make the world in six 24-hour days? And do you have to believe that to, to be a Christian? Can you accept anything modern science says about the age of the earth and evolution and those things and still be a Christian? They're the questions we come, come with. Now, I cannot deal with those debates and have you home before nine o'clock tonight. So, so I can't do that. And truth be told, I don't actually want to. I don't want to because I want us to get to the meaning of Genesis 1. I want us to get to the theology of it because that's why it was written. But I am going to make a couple of short comments to at least help deal with this issue. Uh, but I do want to say I can't deal with it thoroughly uh, and I'm not going to do justice to different people's views. So if it's something you're interested in, come and talk to me afterwards and we, I can talk about some books to read and all that sort of thing. Other people just don't care, Phil. The Bible's the Bible. That's it. You know, so... Some thoughts on Genesis 1 and science. The first is this. Please remember that godly and Bible-loving people who love Jesus and believe Jesus died for our sins and believe that he physically rose from the dead have different views about how to read Genesis 1. That's the first thing I want to say. Just remember that. Remember that smart, godly Christians come to different views and that should just make us realise we should be a little bit humble about our view and not make it a point of division. So I just, that's my opening point. Second one is, whatever view you hold must affirm that God's word is absolutely true. That God's word is inerrant, without error and infallible, totally trustworthy and true. And I think it must agree that what we learn in Genesis is historical. Uh, it isn't written as a myth. This is history. That's how it's written. It's how the rest of the Bible takes it, even if at times it's metaphorical in form or, or poetic in form. It's history. Third thing is, whatever understanding we come to, we have to make sure the Bible is our final authority, not science. The Bible is the word of God, not the opinion of scientists. The Bible is infallible and inerrant, not the opinion of scientists. So you see, yes, it is absolutely legitimate to learn new things from science and then go back and say, actually, we've been misunderstanding the Bible. We, we, we hadn't read that right and actually it fits with that. that. That is absolutely legitimate. That's what happened about 400 years ago where for all of history, every person, whether they were a Christian or not, believed that the earth was the centre of the universe. And then some people got their telescopes out and they said, actually, we revolve around the sun. And people said, ah, oh, the Bible's wrong. Because we've always believed the Bible said the earth cannot be moved, but the earth is moving. And then a smart person said, are you quoting the Psalms at that point? You, you know, when it says the earth cannot be moved, it's not making a point about astronomy. It's, it's making a point about the permanence of God's creation and how, how God is unmovable and unshakable and, and, and so forth. And so you see how modern translations actually tra translate that Psalm, the earth cannot be shaken which captures the meaning better. But the point is, that's entirely legitimate to do, to, to find things out and then say, go back and say, hang on, is the Bible actually saying what people thought it said all that time? But you only do that if that reading of the Bible is actually a legitimate reading of the Bible. We don't adjust the Bible to fit in with science. See, it's the Bible that's the word of God. The Bible is the final authority. Yes, make sure the Bible is actually saying what we think it's saying. But if the Bible contradicts science, science is wrong. 
And it's amazing how often scientific theories get proved wrong, even though people have held them for hundreds or thousands of years. And that's my next point. Science can be wrong. Please don't forget, science is not a value-free zone. That, that man I mentioned before, John Lennox, is one of the world's great scientists. But you see how he, he talked about the fact that often scientists come with a preconceived idea and then they won't actually... They've got an agenda sometimes. Good science actually grew out of people who understood Genesis 1. And they said, because God has made this world, there is order to it, so we can actually work out the laws of physics. We can work out the laws of chemistry. We can work out... The last time I looked at the laws of physics, chemistry was in year 12, but you know what I'm talking about. We can actually work these things out. We can observe things and then theorise that that is how it'll happen in the future. That is why science is a wonderful gift. That's why you need to listen to science. When the doctor tells you, you need this to get well, listen to your doctor. But science can go beyond its bounds. And when scientists exclude God from the picture, science can become more arrogant than it deserves to be. It's interesting. A lot of the most racist theories in the history of our world grew out of evolutionism because they said different races are different levels of evolution. Not many people like to quote that anymore. But it was Darwinism that had a really negative view of many races in our world. Because if you just take science and think it gives you everything, values and meaning, it can't do that. And so science can go beyond its bound. And when scientists exclude God from the picture, science becomes more arrogant than it has the right, or at least scientists get more arrogant than they have the right to be. So if you start with the assumption there is no God, you will say miracles cannot happen. They can't happen. Because your assumption is this world is all there is and the laws of physics must apply at every situation. And if you believe, but if you believe God is above creation, then science knows its place. You see, don't let science claim more than it can. That's just a few points to note before we come to the six days of Genesis 1. But now I get to the $6 million question. Did God make the world in six days? Some Christians say this is a metaphorical description of creation. It's using the six days as a literary device to teach us the truth about God and the truth about his creation. And it's not interested at all in the how of creation. Uh, and some Christians then include parts of the theory of evolution uh, in their way of thinking and, and those sort of things. Because they say, that's how God did what Genesis 1 is telling us God did. Does that make sense? So that's, that's some Christian's view. Now, godly and smart Christians, smarter Christians than me, hold views like that. It doesn't overly worry me if you do, because this is not a gospel issue. My struggle is, the rest of the Bible seems to take Genesis 1 more historically than that. The rest of the Bible... So you think about the Ten Commandments, when it talks about the Sabbath commandment, it says, we rest on the seventh day because God rested on the seventh day. And it just I struggle with that just being a metaphor if you understand what I mean. So I think that even if this is written poetically, and certainly it is not written as a science textbook. Don't, don't try and get your scientific understandings from Genesis 1. Uh, but, and I do think Genesis 1 to 11 is a more poetic way of recording history than say how the story of Abraham is written from Genesis 12 onwards. But I'm not comfortable taking it just as a metaphor, even if some godly Christians do. 
But even among people who, call to a so, who hold to a so-called literal six days of creation, uh, there are different views on that. And I'm not going to do any of them justice. So don't come with your particular view to me afterwards and argue it with me, please. Uh, I'm not that interested. So uh, first, some people hold God did it in six 24-hour days, solar days, and therefore the earth is very young. Uh, and often the argument is that the worldwide flood of Genesis 7 then uh, is responsible for the appearance of age of the earth. That's one view. Another view is the so-called gap theory. So God did each of the creative acts on six days, but then there were massive gaps between those days, and that accounts for the scientific theories on the age of the earth. Uh, another popular one is the idea that the days represent ages and so each day represents a long, much longer period of time and represents a geological age. I think the view I hold is, uh, and, and I say this with all humility and without a lot of care. So the view I hold is what sometimes gets called the analogy view, that the six days of creation are God's work days, his his periods of creating, his steps of creating, but they're not 24-hour days as we know them. In fact, they can't be because the sun and the moon weren't established until day four. Uh, but what Genesis 1 is describing what God did creating the world, but using the analogy we can understand of a work day, that that is the period of time it took him to do each of these things. But the key is that this is describing reality. It's not a myth. Now, I've shared all that, but I can't stress this enough. Here's the thing. I really don't care that much about all that, and I've spent far longer than I was intending to even now talking about it, because please remember that at its heart, Genesis 1 is not a science textbook. John Calvin, one of the greatest Christian thinkers ever, in his commentary on Genesis, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, if you want to learn about astronomy, don't go to Genesis 1, go to university and do an astronomy course. He says, if you, but if you want to know the God behind it all and you want to know the meaning of it all, read Genesis 1. See, to think that Genesis 1 is going to explain just how the moon works and the stars work and, and planets and the sun interact, just to miss why it's here. It's not a science textbook. Its aim is to teach us about God, about the world and about ourselves. It's a theology, it's a theology textbook not a science textbook. That's what God wants us to learn from Genesis 1. Now, if this is an issue for you, if there are things you want to think about in that, uh, if you want to read more about Genesis 1 and science, let me know and I can give you all sorts of good books and all sorts of things uh, to interact with. Uh, but now I want to get back to the creation story. Come with me, verses 2 to 31. And I want to say, what do we learn about God and the world from Genesis 1? Well, do you notice the pattern of each of the days? Look from verse 2. It says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and he called the darkness night. Evening came and then morning the first day. Now, what do you notice there? Do you notice how structured and orderly it is? And do you notice how it is totally driven by God? Nothing happens by accident. It's just all God, 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 God. Do you notice how all God has to do is speak and, and, and things happen? They come into, into being. Every part of the creation happens because God wants it that way. 
Look at the next day, look at verse 6. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, evening came and then morning the second day. You see, it's just the same pattern each day. And we can go through day three and day four and following. So what do you learn about God through all these days of creation? I'm going to point out a couple of things. Do you notice how God totally dominates the story? The, the, the first readers would have compared this to the pagan religions of their world where one God controlled the sea and another God controlled the rain and another God was responsible for that land and another God for that land and the world was chaotic and the world was fearful and you could never know whether the gods were happy with you or not. No, there is one God, Genesis 1 says, and he is in control of it all. We compare this, we read this with our modern worldview on with the laws of nature as if the world is just like this ticking clock where if you know A, therefore B will happen. No, it says God is at work in this world. God is in control of it. And we see how God makes things how he wants them to be. Do you see how God keeps declaring it is good? He says it over and over again, and it was good. This is not an accident. This is how God wants things to be. And I also want you to see, do you see the power of God's word? As I've kept saying, Genesis isn't interested particularly in the question of how things worked, how the sun and the moon connect. And that, that's, it's interested in the fact that it only happened because God said. That's why it happened. God's word is powerful. And of course, we know the end of the story. And that's why I had that reading from the end of the Bible before. We know that God has spoken his greatest word in his son, our Lord Jesus. We know it's amazing how much of the language of the first creation the New Testament picks up and gives to Jesus. When you read John's gospel, it says Jesus brings light. Jesus brings life once and for all. Jesus is the final word of God. And the point you see is listen to the word of God. It is powerful. So what's the picture you get of God in Genesis chapter 1? God is totally in control. God is behind everything. And so God is the one who is worthy of all praise and honour and power and glory. What about our world? What do we learn about creation? Well, you see, I hope you see, how the creation is orderly. Genesis 1 is why science works. Genesis 1 is why science, the world is not chaotic. Science didn't grow out of paganism. It couldn't. Because paganism said, you can't know why things happen. You can't. But Genesis 1 says, you can know how this world works. Science grew out of a Judeo-Christian worldview, a Genesis 1 worldview, because God has made a world where the laws of physics and chemistry and biology apply. You can trust if you plant the seeds... They will grow. I wrote that in my notes and I realised that is not true of anything Victoria and I have ever planted in our garden. But if you know anything about farming, you can plant the seeds and the plants will grow. The rules work. You can trust that if you take the penicillin tablet, it will deal with your health issue, whatever it deals with. You, you can trust if you stand on water, you will sink. God's creation is orderly. But, and this is the mistake of our modern world, the creation is still dependent on the creator. God stands behind it all. Yes, he's given it order, but the rains only come because he wants them to. 
And the penicillin only works because God wants it to. And God can step in at any point in time and say, a man can walk on water. And he did that once with his son. See, God's creation is orderly, but it's dependent on the creator. Don't trust in science. Don't make science the infallible authority. Trust in the God who stands behind science and makes science possible. And finally, I think you see God's creation is good. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see how how our sin has damaged God's world, but it is still good. I don't think this is our problem. We live in the consumerist West that has no problem taking anything from God's good creation and using it for ourselves. But lots of people in Eastern religions uh, and in different parts of Christian history have thought creation is evil. And the way to be spiritual is to withdraw out of the world and not experience anything in the world. That's Buddhism at its heart. That, that, is, that is Buddhism. You need to withdraw from the physical world to find spiritual reality. No, God says, this world I have made for you to enjoy. But enjoy it, recognising it is my good gift to you. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, it'll be on the screen. He says, for everything created by God is good and nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Which brings me to my final point. What should our response be to Genesis 1? I've got two quick points, but they're the two different sides of the coin. The first is... Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Don't walk out of church today and look up at that sky or tonight walk out of your house and look up and see that massive moon that's there at the moment, that's as big as the sun. Don't walk out and see it in all its glory and then hide from the fact that there is a God who created it and who deserves your thanks and praise. So we saw in our studies in Romans earlier this year the essence of sin is to fail to give God the honour and thanks and praise that he deserves. Do not look at this world in all its glory and then put your head in the sand and say there is no God. The Bible says that is the heart of foolishness. Don't leave, for Christians, don't say you believe in God, that God is behind it, and then go and live like this world is all there is. Don't go out there and live as if this is all there is. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Don't be a fool. Instead, my last point, let's give God the glory and praise he deserves. When you look at the world, don't say, isn't nature wonderful? It's one of my pet hates, how we give credit to something called Mother Nature. It's like giving credit to Santa Claus for your present. Thank your parents for your Christmas present, not Santa Claus. Sorry, no young kids here for me. You know, give the glory to God. Why did God make us and why has he redeemed us? To declare his praises. Live and let people see you living as someone who believes that this world is good and wonderful, but it is not everything. We do not live for this world. We live for the God who created this wonderful world. And remember that the God who spoke the world into existence which is pretty amazing, has spoken an even greater word. You don't have to search for God in science or nature. God didn't make the world and say, now come and find me. He has revealed himself to us and he's done it wonderfully and finally in the Lord Jesus. And that's why in John's gospel, it starts off by saying, in the same way that God brought light into darkness in Genesis 1, he has brought 
true light into the darkness of our world in Jesus, his son. So give him the praise and the glory. Amen.